Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. This is the first time you're tuning in with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. Go to focuscompound.com to get investment write-ups from Jeff going all the way back to 2005. Uh, best place in the world to get everything that we put out there is follow me on Twitter, which is at focused compound. All of the information is down in the description below. Uh, if you are interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. Let's start the conversation. So Jeff, how's everything going on in your world? Just completely, you know, normal week the past few days, huh? Nothing really going on in the markets yeah, or anything so, like that? Mm-hmm. So since we last recorded, it uh, has been all the events with banks, for instance. Crazy. Uh, that's all since the last time that we recorded. Yeah. Yeah, somebody had told me actually... They tweeted it saying it's pretty surreal. I was listening to our last podcast on Wednesday. You basically describing this idea of, you know, the duration mismatch. Uh, and then, you know, Thursday comes around and it sort of is playing out in real time. Um, take us through, like, what the heck is going on? So just for the record, we are recording this Wednesday, mm -hmm. March 15th. Um, Silicon Valley Bank was placed in receivership on Friday, uh, of course, the world was going crazy all weekend. Tons of questions uh, as we sit here and record this today. So the Silicon Valley Bank was taken over by regulators. Signature Bank was taken over by regulators. Credit Suisse right. is taking a bath today. People are worried about Credit Suisse. Yeah. People are worried about regional banks. Um. Obviously, this isn't public. You had emailed me, was it Thursday night, kind of being worried about one of the banks that went under, and then the next day uh, it went under, Signature Bank. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll just say it. Um, we're not short anything. Obviously, we do have exposure to banks. We talk about banking a lot on the podcast. Uh, no financial stake in um, you know, some uh, either Credit Suisse, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, or Signature Bank. Just curious, take me through mm -hmm. your perspective. What's going on? We have a ton of questions to go through. I've got a ton of questions. It's going to be a little bit more of a free-flowing podcast, but take me through your perspective. What's going on, Jeff? Right. So we record on Wednesdays, and if you go back to last week, um, obviously that podcast came out after some events had started to happen, but we recorded it before then, and we would have... That's If you go to the section there the the chapter or whatever that talks about banks we did talk about the duration risk issue and that if banks uh failed or basically that when the next banks fail it would be for that reason so that that's not news that way now that doesn't mean that we expected anything to happen immediately certainly didn't and when i said bank failures in that case i i actually meant more of like um uh the government fdic um taking things over in a more orderly way than the failures that we had. The failures that we've had have been like the Washington Mutual failure. Um, 
or a few other ones that were very large in the past. And those have become very uncommon. They were very uncommon in the 2008 financial crisis. So, uh, the, you know, those were very rushed failures of Silicon Valley and signature. Um, but otherwise it is what we talked about, which it wouldn't be credit things. It would be, um, interest rate risk. Uh, obviously there are runs on deposits and that's what caused them. And, and if you have this kind of issue and you don't have any runs on your deposits, then you don't have this problem. The other thing we talked about last week was a big part of it is the money supply issue. So this is exacerbated in the case of all the banks. And I don't know that we want to talk about like use the names of a lot of banks that have potential problems unless it's, it's been covered a lot in the press and stuff. But, um, a lot of them had deposits flowing out for perfectly natural reasons. Um, but that doesn't usually happen. So if you were, uh, a brokerage involved with meme stock things, if you were, um, involved with venture capital, if you were involved with crypto, if you were, um, obviously if the money supply contracted by a few percent last year, you would expect your deposits to be down a lot more than that just because the, um, clients that you, that, that bank with you, um, had money flowing out for that reason. And that's originally what happened with Silicon Valley, obviously, is that they had cash burn and everything. So all the banks, um, that, that seem to have serious, um, issues that way, um, had deposits declining anyway. And I think that was part of what happened to a great extent that people may realize because they may not have been set up to deal with that. Um, a, a lot of banks aren't set up to deal with that possibility because it never happens really that in the overall economy, you have a contraction of money supply. So that combined with where it went into these particular banks and everything had already caused things for a couple of uh, quarters, you know? So, um, that set things up a little bit differently than what, what would normally happen in a bank run because you wouldn't normally have your deposits contracting like that for everybody anyway. Um, so, We've talked about Frost on this podcast before, you know, in their last earnings call, they talked about how they, they were concerned about, um, they were, they were concerned that, you know, deposits, they didn't know what would happen with deposits. And so that's one reason why they had a lot of cash. And, you know, when analysts asked about everything, they said, well, we'll see how those things go, but, um, that they might have, you know, non-interest stuff going out and that it had been, and that maybe they should raise rates a bit more and everything. And that's with a bank that doesn't have those sorts of issues. So it, it also had like a couple, you know, year over year, it might've been up nine or percent or so in deposits, I think, but quarter over quarter, it might've been down a couple percent and basically in line or a little bit better than probably the overall economy in terms of uh, money supply and stuff. But that's something that everyone has to deal with. And then if you're not set up to deal with that, then you are, you start to see that issue. So when normally when there's a run on a bank, um, it basically would happen without people having the opportunity to see what was happening with deposits flowing out of the bank for a few quarters and that issue being really um, something that they were very aware of. Um, if you remember, I think two quarters ago, we talked a little about First Republic and that they were going out and doing CDs in the three to seven month range or so. Um, like they were aiming very much targeting at three to seven months on the, of the most recent earnings call, a little bit longer before that. They were very much targeting um, just having money tied up with them at those rates into the middle of the year because of when they expected the Fed to pivot. 
and that was a very specific choice that they made and so that was one of the things that we talked about there and, and you can go back to earnings call transcripts the most recent one especially for the, the two most recent ones for first republic and see analysts kind of that's the only issue that they're bringing up over and over again it's you know net interest margin compression but also why are you doing these CDs at these rates for exactly this time? Do you want to raise capital? Do you, you know, whatever. And uh, do you want to borrow more from the federal home loan bank instead of doing these CDs? And that's just what all the questions are. And they're very polite questions and everything. But the the undertone of that is um, the kind of issue that we're seeing now. Um, and that's, there are other banks that were obviously in much worse shape than First Republic because of what happened to them. But um, I think a big part of it is obviously expectations for interest rates increasing more um, changed. But also I think it was more obvious um, what things would look like before there was actually any runs on any banks. So it's not like there was a run initially on Silicon Valley Bank. It's that they had a, a client base that was the deposits were going to come down anyway and come down quite a bit. Um, so that part of it is unusual. Totally unusual. And that's what we talked about with the unprecedented thing in terms of the money supply contraction. That never happens. And so all banks are going to see some contraction. And it, it's a bank. I mean, normally to be down a couple percent quarter over quarter in deposits or something would be an indication of something specific with the bank. But that would be a, the sort of median bank right now would be down a few percent. Um, you know, year over year, you sh your deposits should be down by a bunch because they... they um, are at a very elevated level. Uh, I think going into this last year, deposits relative to GDP were about 1.3 times what they've been the last 50, 60, 70 years, something like that. I mean, they've been pretty steady. They, they, they're cyclical, but th uh, there was never this level of deposits to GDP. So a contraction of almost, you know, a 40% or something wouldn't be, um, wouldn't get deposits out of line with GDP. So these are very marginal sorts of deposits, you know what I mean, just overall. And we know that, and we've talked about that in, in, um, in newspaper things covered and everything saying people are going to work down their excess savings and all that. What they mean is what we're seeing happening with these banks. So so it's just like the realization of that, but all this stuff is things we talked about and everyone else has been well aware of. Let's go back to the beginning, though. I mean, what are your thoughts mm -hmm. on the general act of, I mean, okay, so the big C word happens in 2020. The mm -hmm. PPP program uh, comes into place. A lot of these banks are just flushed with cash. Interest rates go to zero, cash meaning like deposits. Interest rates go to zero. Yeah. Technology just goes absolutely berserk. We talk about the fundraising environment that happened. I mean, I made a joke, which you and I were talking about this before I hosted the panel at the Will Oak event last year. I was talking about the things that literally started and ended between yeah. the two years or whatever that there was an in-person Berkshire meeting. Companies uh, raising capital at like 100 times sales, just an insane environment. Everyone listening knows this, right? Silicon Valley had a bank, or and a lot of banks have a ton of uh, deposits. It's challenging in banking because what are you gonna do with those deposits? Like, Where was the first misstep in your eyes that Silicon Valley Bank made is it the way that they lent out those uh, uh those deposits or yeah. technically how they were trying to chase yield right purchasing uh mortgage-backed securities and u.s treasuries when interest rates were at 
record lows. I mean, my question to you is like, was there some sort of like, I mean, is this, was this kind of obvious in hindsight? I mean, we've talked about Silicon Valley Bank before, right? And you've always talked about yeah. things that they were doing that worried you. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I know it's easy to say now, but are you exactly surprised that all of this happened? No, I'm surprised. I mean, I, I expected, I'm not surprised that some of these stocks will lose almost all their value, but I'm surprised that the banks had to be closed as quickly as they were and that it wasn't a serious, I, I would have expected, you know, um, the Saudis are putting money in, the, the um, we're raising money from some Chinese bank to do this thing. We're uh, having this uh, group or that group that do distress things putting money in. Um, and, and a lot of capital raises and government things uh, with it eventually going down a lot and the common stock having relatively little value long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, but massive dilution and things like that, I thought it would take longer. Um, but if you remember, I thought it would happen a lot sooner. So that's that's the issue of why it happened so fast in some ways is because we've been talking about this. You know, this has been a major concern for 15 months or so. Um, the beginning of 2022... January of 2022 is the point at which this becomes a very serious concern. Um, and then it's just been the realization of that over time, as we kind of talked about on the podcast um, a couple of years ago, you know, maybe the Fed will keep raising rates a little bit faster than people expect. The expectations will keep rising. That's basically what's happened, that the expectations keep increasing all the time for what the terminal rate would be and um, pushing out when you would get relief on this. Um, so because of that, it happened in a big hurry, but that's kind of what happens in bubbles and things that the longer it goes on in the first place, the faster the, the, the plummet is later on, the faster the correction as instead of a more gradual letting out of that uh, issue. So like, um, the, you know, when we talk about, do they do something wrong, you know, and like, what, what was the mistake? Um, the, you could say, they didn't do things that were necessarily unusual, but they, they didn't make any attempts. The issue with a lot of these banks is that, that, that worried me about it is, because um, I was emailing with someone about this recently, and a big, big concern is that um, when assessing a risk, right, part of it is what you see in the balance sheet and what's going on with the trends that way. But a very big part of it is trying to assess what the people who can adjust to that risk are doing and what they're thinking. And my thinking on that is that... Uh, I've been concerned that they're way too relaxed about it, too slow to do something about it, and also too slow to be realistic about what's going to happen um, in planning, right? So if you think that rates might go to 5% or something, then like in terms of a margin of safety kind of thing we talk about in this podcast, you've got to plan for like 7% rates, right? Because the you know you need to leave yourself room that way. Um, you, you don't want the base case to be your your the the thing that would put you on the verge of being out of business. So uh, the, the, the thing that like Silicon Valley Bank and others did is that they completely ignored the risk. Um, they behaved completely as if it didn't matter. So, so from like a value invested kind of perspective, right? Silicon Valley Bank and some other banks bought 10 plus year um, securities, different kinds in different cases. Um, could be treasuries, it could be um, mortgage-backed securities, it could be a variety of different things that are very similar um, that have virtually no credit risk. Or in some cases, they also made loans that have virtually no credit risk. So um, this is the case with like First Republic. So First Republic, 
does um, a lot of home loans. They loan their median loan size is like nine hundred thousand dollars. So that would mean that the the home being bought is over a million dollars, and um, their long term a lot of it's longer term fixed stuff, right? So when you do that, when there's a big increase in the de the deposits like you had, you're putting a very large part of your portfolio into a very bad security. It's vastly overpriced. So, um, for example, if you buy, let, let's say it was treasuries, um, because it's just easier to know those rates. And let's say 10 years or something, where in many cases it was longer than 10 years, but like 10-year treasury is something we can think of. So that kind of gives them the benefit of the doubt because uh, uh, in terms of the prices we're talking about. So a lot of this was done by various banks at about 1.7%, the yield. Um, so if we think of it that way, how overpriced was it? It was massively overpriced. Um, inflation over the last, what, 50 years or so, since we talked about since the, the U.S., um, uh, um, uh, basically since um, we no longer had any Bretton Woods type policies and stuff. So basically since there's been completely untethered currency to any sort of um, link to other currencies, link to gold, et cetera. Um, since that time, you had about 4% inflation is the average. Um, so you're buying something that yields negative uh, 2.3%, you know, in real terms. So it's vastly overpriced. It's one of the most expensive that it's been. Uh, now the other years it was very expensive was in very recent years. So the problem is you can lose a lot of money on that. Right. And then the problem with some banks is that they obviously put this in, um, held to maturity mm -hmm. instead of avoiding available for sale. Right. So as we talked about with like frost, why did their book value go down and why is the price to book so high? What I pointed out was the price to book ratio on some banks goes up a lot and that's basically because they have these um, other comprehensive loss that is due to um, what you're seeing in the things that they hold that's available to for sale. Um, and so that's reducing their their price. To, that's reducing their book value, and so their price is going up. Their price to book is going up, even if the price is staying the same. Um, there are other banks that don't put anything in held to maturity, and um, if you look at the balance sheet of these banks, they put the most overvalued things in held to maturity. So, um, and so that obviously means that we don't intend to sell it because if we sold it, we take the large loss on it and, and that problem. So in the case of like Silicon Valley bank, they would have been negative equity. Um, mm -hmm. if, they, if they sold enough of what they needed to do, what the banks basically need to do is like sell a bunch of very long-term, uh, risk-free assets and buy a bunch of very short term. Um, what they want to do, basically, if they want to be in a better position, is to sell off the things that were more than 10 years and stuff and buy things that are less than two years. Um, but they aren't willing to do that because it would make them in a position where they would appear to be broke, um, which is exactly the position the Fed's in. So the Fed has negative equity. And the reason it has negative equity is for the same reason. It loaded up on the same assets that these banks are loading up on. And so... And now it's paying out high rates. And so it's underwater on that. It doesn't matter for the Fed because no one will stop them from operating, but it will matter for these banks, right? So it's just, if you followed the same policy that the Fed did, if you if you literally followed what they were doing, then you would end up with negative equity is what I mean. And so that's that's kind of what happened in these cases. They took the deposits and they immediately bought things with it that would cause problems later. Yeah, and when you talk about the, when the average bank did this, 
uh, rates were 1.7%. I mean, I went back and when the Fed started raising interest rates for the first time, I looked at the uh, the dot plots afterwards and the median FOMC member anticipated, uh, this is March of 2022, uh, anticipated that it would need to uh, raise rates to 2.8% by the end of uh, 2023 and remain there through the end of 2024. And obviously we've spoken a lot about on this podcast how, hey, like history doesn't uh, agree with that, especially if you're trying to get inflation down. So do you think Silicon Valley Bank and these other banks were just using the Fed as their shining star when they were planning? But even at that, or from that perspective, they still would have been underwater on a lot of these yeah, they, securities. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what they own and stuff, but you could be down 10 to 15% just from a movement like that, probably. Um, so, I mean, a lot more potentially, depending on how long-term some of the, the securities are. But again, like we're pretending here that these are all 10, you know, because of the way they classify mm -hmm. it, I'm kind of giving the benefit of the doubt and saying, okay, they're all treasuries, they're all 10-year. A lot of the stuff isn't that, and so the yield is even worse than I'm saying because there's some spread over treasuries, and they're actually a lot longer than 10 years in some cases. Um, but yeah, you would have even had losses on that. But the idea is, I mean, there's other logical reasons why you would do this. So one is, um, in terms of regulatory stuff and things like that, um, as we're seeing here, for you can take a lot more duration risk without being um, within reg the regulations that you have than you can a lot of credit risk. So what would make more sense, obviously, is to buy um, much shorter term things that have some credit risk. So whether that's um, CNI loans or that's, I mean, like what we talked about, so like um, uh, junk bonds, all those sorts of things, which you're not allowed to do. And, you know, because basically that would be seen as very high risk, whereas in reality, having things that are very short term, but had some credit risk to them would be a lot safer. So, you know, buying buying lower quality bonds that would mature in a few years would be a lot safer than buying very long-term bonds. Um, and that's obvious if you're using common sense because you're taking your several standard deviations out in terms of how weird the interest rate situation is, but you're not in terms of things like um, the credit risk. So in, in terms of where you think you're going to get your return. So like the you should see that you are t taking an incredible amount of risk in terms of buying something at a very inflated value. Um, but it's pretty common. This is kind of a common way to have problems. Um, I, I've talked about this before, but a lot of times heavily leveraging up a super safe asset and then having it move against you temporarily is a very common way um, for something to fail. It's basically like, like how long-term capital management failed, for instance. Um, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's a little more complicated, but it's, um, also how there've been some other failures in things that bought sovereign things. Um, I'm thinking of, um, there's investment bank that failed that John Corzine ran, for instance. Um, same sort of thing where if things moved against you in the market in what you were doing that with so sovereign debt risk, um, it was riskier sovereign debt, but, uh, it's not something that you think is very high risk probably. Um, and then you have a problem when people, uh, pull their funding, uh, pull your funding, you know, they, they withdraw their deposits or stop lending to you. Um, and of course these banks would say that that's what happened, which is true. If you didn't have a run, then you wouldn't have a problem. 
Um, and they would say that any bank can't survive an unlimited run, which is also mm-hmm. true to a point. But it, that's sort of true, but sort of not. Because, see, historically, if we go back before the Fed existed and stuff, there were runs on banks a lot. And um, plenty of them survived the runs. Because you would be out in the country somewhere, have this run, and then you would have a uh, correspondent bank. You'd have a bank in a money center bank in New York and stuff that would be happy to lend to you a lot because you had good collateral in terms of like safe treasuries, basically. Because you didn't have this interest rate issue. Um, here, the problem is obviously that you're trying to, if you did that, no one, it's, you have, let's say you think you on your books, you have, um, you know, $300 million worth of long-term treasuries or something in reality you have you know 200 million in terms of like the fair market value and so someone's going to give you a haircut on the 200 million not on the 300 until what happened with the fed happened you know but because that like the fed thing that that they're willing to do exposes them to loss um you know so others wouldn't do that because for that reason but if you had things that were if you didn't have a if you have a liquidity problem but you don't have a problem at fair market value then you can usually find people to lend to you, right? But the fact is that that like on a liquidating basis, Silicon Valley Bank was broke. If it, so, you know, um, it's like when we talk about net nets. I mean, usually people would lend to a net net because it could be liquidated for more than than it's um, trading at, you know. But it, that wouldn't be the case if it overstated all of its assets and stuff. And in this case, those assets were overstated. Mm-hmm. Do you think runs in bank runs in the modern day are a little bit different than the past just because you could wire out funds from your cell phone within, you know, minutes of pulling out your phone, going to the website, logging in and doing it? I mean, Silicon Valley Bank, it's a, they face 42 billion in deposit withdrawal requests. I mean, right. And you think of the actual act of what a bank run used to be people standing in line in front of the bank. I mean, it's just completely different. Those people, you just think of like withdrawing 42 billion within 24 hours or whatever it was, maybe 36 hours for standing out in the rain in a line, trying to redeem your money, withdraw your money. Do you think bank runs are a little bit different? Does that make you think differently about what it means to have sticky deposits? And if any banks today actually truly have sticky deposits? Um... I'm not sure that the runs are pretty fast in the past, faster than you might think that things fell apart. Um, and those numbers aren't incredibly different than like how fast funding was pulled from Bear Stearns in the in t- uh, 2008 period. So, um, uh, you know, it's who you're dealing with. And so I think that if they had a huge number of branches around the country with an average of $30 million or something per branch spread around many different depositors, uh, I don't think it would have mattered what, anyone said on Twitter or anywhere else, I don't think people would have pulled a lot of their money. Um, it was that you had a, a group of the same sort of people um, who were all talking to each other and who are all over, obviously, the the insured deposit limit. Um, we should point out here, you know, I think one issue is that isn't re- talked about enough is the, there's really not risk to your deposits. Um, I think the mm-hmm. deposit limit is generally, historically, has been irrelevant. And it's not a good idea to go around saying that it matters a great deal what the deposit limit is. Um, There's been virtually no U.S. bank failures in which uninsured deposits haven't also been paid out. And in the cases of the banks we're talking about here, they were given 
almost immediate access. You just didn't have it for a weekend, you know, to your money again. So depositors were unaffected by this. And I think it's important to remember that because, you know, while theoretically you're only insured up to $250,000, um, I think that realistically, except for from very special cases in, in the past, um, people have who, who are over the uninsured limits have not had any problem getting their money. And so this is an issue that affects equity holders and bondholders and preferred stock, but not depositors. Mm -hmm. But if you could recall, I mean, Friday when they put the company to receivership and they were talking, you know, whatever the FDIC issued a blog post or an article or link, whatever that basically said, hey, you're good for your $250,000, anything above, you're going to basically receive a certificate. It's like, oh, so now I'm like, uh, uh, this company's in bankruptcy and I'm going to have a claim on it. I mean, I could see how that would cause a lot of fear over the weekend because i was like imagine receiving this message call our toll-free number with your certificate to learn more about your options going forward that'd be incredibly frightening especially because i mean 86 yeah. percent of their deposit base was uninsured yeah i just think that the media and that us talking about and stuff should be clear to people that i think realistically you don't have risks to your uninsured deposits i don't think there's risk to depositors and i think that that should be said that they shouldn't just read what the FDIC said in the case of a CNBC, Bloomberg news reports, whatever, as if making this big distinction between insured and uninsured deposits. Um, that is true, right? But depositors are senior to everyone else. And usually there've been ways to work things out where depositors can be paid off. Um, and as you saw here, they were given, they were quickly given access. And, uh, I, I expected them to be given access almost immediately. Um, and that's historically what's happened. Um, and I think that fears from depositors that they're not going to get their money back are, are just, it's, it's not realistic. It's not a realistic concern to have. Considering all the things in your financial life that you have risks to, this is a very, very small thing. It's very unlikely that a bank that you hold money at would fail, that it would be over the um, insured limits and that you wouldn't be able to get access to it. And even if you weren't able to get access to it, it would quickly become obvious that you were in a situation where you were owed the money. And I just don't see it as a particularly big issue. Uh, other institutions would be happy to give you money temporarily if the government wasn't willing to do it. I just, it's, it's, I don't see depositors as needing to have any concerns about it. Yeah, and then of course the talks shifted towards like bailout and then people are like well this isn't a bailout this is just a backstop for the depositors the bond and equity holders management teams everyone's getting wiped out um this is really just a backstop for the depositors the businesses that have their operating cash with silicon valley bank you know couldn't make payroll obviously i'm sure you saw the uh big uh, rumblings all weekend about that very topic yeah and that's why I just worry about the way that it was covered. I think mm -hmm. that they should have someone on to explain that historically this has not been an issue and that it's likely that it won't be an issue. Um, instead of just saying, here's the technical issues of what you'd be owed and stuff. Mm -hmm. And media this weekend was a lot like drinking water from a fire hose. Twitter, any sort of financial news outlet, Wall Street Journal. I mean, just, it was almost, I mean, exhausting reading everything and i mean there was extreme fear out there and sometimes you wonder does that fear spreading cause more of a problem i mean i'm not saying one way or the other but i wonder just in the modern day for like well this is reality these things could happen a lot quicker just because how quickly news gets spread 
whether that's true or fake. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, if, if some, if there's a bad situation, but no one knows about it, um, then there won't be a run. I mean, if you can hide what's happening at the bank, then you can continue to operate. But the same thing is true if you embezzle money. I mean, yeah, there's people who've embezzled money and they pay it back eventually and no one notices. And yeah, their, their boss never notices what happened and it's fixed. And yeah, I mean, if, if you give people unlimited time to fix their problem then, and no one talks about what's happening, then it can be resolved sometimes, you know. But the same argument could be made for most any bank that's failed. I mean, not any bank that's failed. There's lots that have to do with fraud and stuff. But, you know, if people kept funding Bayer, would it have worked out? If no one noticed for a few years, maybe. I don't know. Mm. So let's talk more about um, uh, regional banks, right, and the trickle-on effects from this. Does it make regional banks a little bit harder to invest in? I mean, the regulation that may come out of this, is it going to make this, um, you know, industry uninvestable from your point of view? Is it going to make you change anything? I mean, I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on the back end, assuming more banks don't fail, um, how this is going to change, if at all, how you think about investing in bank stocks. I'm not sure. It depends on the bank. Another issue with almost all the banks that ran into the serious problems is that they all grew faster than their return on equity and had for a long time. And so they actually were tapping the market pretty regularly for different kinds of funding. Um, and that's unusual in the United States for any company and certainly for a bank. Um, normally, certainly the vast majority of banks in the United States don't grow as fast as their return on equity normally. So they pay out dividends, they buy back stock, they, they do other things like that. And, um, these did not. So we've talked about some banks before that ha are in the same situation, but that's a special sort of issue that they have. Um, so, but you know, if you're, if your return on equity is, you know, so let's say your return on, let's use return on assets because that takes into account the leverage issue. If your return on assets are 12, uh, 1.2 to 1.5% um, and then you imagine that being leveraged up 10 times or something, then you would be at a 12 to 15% return on equity. If you were growing at more like eight to 10% or whatever, um, six to 10%, um, then you wouldn't have a problem. It's only in the case of these banks. Um, so you have Silicon Valley bank up there. That's one example we can use. Um, so how fast was there? Uh, we had earning assets you could use. That's the best gauge or, or deposits, you know, too, but earning assets is fine. So how big was the growth in the 10 year on earning assets? Uh, let's see 10 year Kager earning assets, 25%. Right. And what was their return on equity in a bad year? Well, I mean, the, the median was 11.8, but a bad year was yeah 3.45 in right. the whole so to, 08. So understand that you either have to increase your leverage a lot each year, or you have to um, issue shares, um, common stock, preferred stock, or borrow in some way. Um, and that's not good. And so generally I would avoid, I mean, banks as they're very, very small, very, very small, like when they first have their first branch or something, would not be able to generate a high enough return on equity. But in general, I would not want to invest in a bank in which its um, growth rate is higher than its return on equity, generally. So uh, we could look at First Republic, for instance, which is a bank that, you know, got assistance in some ways, got from other uh, from other banks, from the government in some way. Yeah. Um, and what was their 10-year return on equity? Uh, 10%. Okay. And return on assets was a little bit under 1%. Yep, 0.9. Yeah. And what was their growth rate for the 10 years? In earning assets, 20%. 
So it's a 10% gap per year. So, I mean, I, I don't think that's a great thing to have. Uh, we could look at signature. Yeah, I was going to get to signature, but uh, 10 year KGR on, on earning assets, 20%, 10 year median returns, uh, 10 year return on equity, 13%, 10 year median return on assets, 1.1%. Yeah. So my rule would be take the return on assets. You can take median or whatever you think is a normal year. Um, so some banks says they get bigger from being very, very small and have great economies of scale. Or if the, the situation changes, maybe in terms of the yield curve was very weird, might justifiably say that our return on assets in the early years was not uh, accurate for different reasons and it's better now and, and fine. But you would take the return on assets and I would say multiply it by 10 as a normal sort. It's just very easy to do in your head. I don't know if 8 is the right number, 12 is the right number, but 10 is very easy to do in your head. So you just move the decimal point there. And so, for instance, in the case of this bank, we would say, okay, if they grow at 13% a year, that might be okay. If they grow faster than that, I see issues. I'm saying they're relying on other people's money. Uh, uh, not other people's money, but like not their depositors' money and stuff. No matter what they're saying, in the long run, they have to. Because, uh, I mean, First Republic's issued stock before. Um, even banks that are much more successful that we talked about, we talked about Service First, um, uh, that bank, if you look that one up, um, has also had to issue stock over time because they've they've grown faster than their return on equity, obviously, even though they're a very high ROE bank. Um, so, uh, yeah, we can go to Service First to show the point about that. Um, okay. So this is a very successful bank. As we saw, what's the return on assets, the 10-year median return on assets? 1.5%. 1.5. Do you, do you see their highest ROA year? What's that? Highest RO, let's see, 20.7%. I mean, out of 08, they had 29.6, but I guess a more normal one would probably be 20.7. Okay. And then what do we have? So in terms of like earning deposits and stuff, they have pretty, is are they at a pretty decent level now? Let's see. That's pretty close. That's about the same now, I believe. Let's see. That's odd though. Um, I don't know if they were as of last year or something, but. Their growth rate seems to be a lot lower than it was not that long ago. So I don't know what that's reflecting. But um, what was their growth last year in like um, balance sheet size? Do you have any information on that? They may have shrunk yeah, we could. is what I'm saying or something. Because there's something odd about that number relative to what it was a year ago. But if that's true, then over a 10-year period, they haven't. Um, uh, total assets from last year was what? They did, they did shrink. So 2021, 15.4 billion, 2022, uh, 14.5 or 14.6 billion. Which is fine. I mean, you have to, if you're in a situation like what we're talking about, you have to shrink. Um, and you have to shrink in a safe way. But but that's my point. There, there's different things you could do. You could increase your leverage each and every year. But it, the issue is it's, it's a constant acceleration that you'd be doing. So if you have a gap of 10% or something, meaning that your return on equity is is 10% below your growth rate, which would be extreme, um, then you either have to increase your leverage every single year or you have to issue stock or something or you have to slow down your growth rate or you have to increase your return on equity. The least realistic of those is increasing the return on assets. Um, so you can increase the leverage to get higher ROE versus the ROA. Um, there was tax cuts and things like that. Um, and, and there could be different things that banks could have too that could bring in money in different ways. But 
basically one of the things I'm saying has to happen or because you're growing too fast relative to the situation that you're in. So there's not a way you're not in a steady state really that way. Um, what you want to see, I think is something where, like I said, I would be much more comfortable in this case where your return on equity is say 1.5 times or something. You're your So like, let's look at frost as an example. Um, cause frost and, and, um, frost and first Republic, had very different growth rates over the last 10 years, but not very different returns on equity. In fact, Frost probably had slightly higher return on assets, same return on equity. Um, and yet, how fast did it grow its earning assets? 8.6%. Okay, 8.6%. And then we said the ROE on average was, what, 10% in the case of Frost? So yep. you had some available to pay dividends or whatever. Now, uh, it poor return on equity, no doubt. Poor return on assets relative to what they were in the past. And then, and the growth picked up very recently for them, right? Like their growth wasn't that high in the beginning of the decade. But that's an example that you could grow a bank at 10% a year if your return on equity was something like 10% a year. Or if you were starting from very low leverage, you know, um, there's nothing wrong if you're, if you're leveraged four times or something at the beginning of a period and you increase that leverage, but you have to stop at some point. Um, but otherwise, there's this gap all the time. And so if we go to First Republic, because like I said, the return equity is like exactly the same for Frost and First Republic. 10.3. Um, mm -hmm. Their earning assets grew at, uh, let's see, three times 20%. faster. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's compounded. So then Frost. So uh, two-thirds or so. Yeah. So like, not quite two-thirds, but the majority by quite a bit of their growth would have to come from either increasing leverage over time, which they did increase it a bit over time, um, or issuing stock, and they issued stock. Um, there's also preferred stock. You can see if you look, that First Republic has a ton of preferred stock out, all different series, so they must be issuing it all the time. Like there's there's like a Series K, a Series M, a Series, you know, so if they're going through all those letters, that's, that's what they've been doing. Um, Frost, I think, has one preferred stock series out. Um, so that's what's happening in these cases. Now, that's not what caused any of these banks problems, but I think that fundamentally having a growth rate in excess of your return on equity is a problem. A high growth rate in assets is an issue for uh, the overall industry, any industry, if you see it, it's an issue to consider. Certainly in financials, um, insurance and banking, I'd be worried about if the overall group is doing it. And I'd be worried about it with the individual businesses. I think the the safest thing to me in the long run is always to have a return on equity. And that's from at a reasonable leverage ratio of the return on assets that exceeds your needs for growth. And, you know, but I'm not a regulator and stuff, but that's the thing I would focus on as number one. One of the first things to focus on would be what's your return on assets, multiply that by some reasonable number. You know, that's very up to debate because there's Banks could operate at all sorts of different leverage ratios. They have operated all sorts of different leverage ratios. You've had banks operate at half the leverage that we're talking about here and probably at four times, um, you know, different countries and at different times and everything. And they both managed to exist under those circumstances. So um, that's up for debate, how much equity you really need. But what we're talking about is that the situation has to keep getting worse or you have to keep tapping the market if your return on equity is lower. Um and really what we need is the return on assets. Uh, so return on assets times some reasonable leverage ratio needs to be higher than your growth rate or equal to your growth rate or whatever over a long enough period of time. And we're taking 10 years, which is very generous to these, 
to these banks to judge them over that long. It accelerated in the most recent years, but see, otherwise there's not a buffer there. So, you know, that that's why you're relying on these kinds of um, uh, needing to get into that funding because it creates a problem. You saw that with what happened with um, Silicon Valley. They wanted to raise capital, right? But then what happens if your stock drops, if your price to book goes down to an unreasonable price? I mean, like, you know, if First Republic's price to book as it was yesterday or whatever, if that was what their price to book ratio had been, their stock was that unpopular for the last 10 years, they couldn't grow this way because they wouldn't be able to issue at a high enough price to book, you know? So I just, you know, obviously First Republic is not in the situation that we're talking about with like Silicon Valley or Signature or anything like that. And obviously we mentioned Service First, which doesn't have any of the problems that we've talked about with any of these. It's, it's um, balance sheet is very different. Like we talked about CNI and all that. They've got a lot more of that. Very different bank. But I'm just pointing out these because they all go to something pretty simple in terms of having a, the, the profitability is lower than the growth rate. And, uh, you know, having profitability higher than the growth rate is the key to me for having a safe um, industry, whether we're talking about insurance or banking or anything. And I think it's the thing that's most underrated. Um, Cause I've said this before and Buffett said it, it's controversial, but I'll say it again, is that I d banks don't need equity. Like they don't actually need equity today at any point. That's not going to save you. Um, you could have let Silicon Valley Bank operate with no equity if it could have gone funding somehow and gone through this. They need funding day to day, which is a confidence issue and other things. And they need earning power on their deposits. If they don't have those things, then there's a problem. But so like some European banks have problems where they're as soon as they got into a bad equity situation, I didn't see how they would solve it. And this is where we talked about Credit Suisse, but this has been an ongoing thing for them. Their, their profitability is so poor that if regulated seriously, where they're not allowed to use an incredible amount of leverage, I don't see how they earn their way out. Whereas I see very simply how if Frost's equity vanished overnight in the financial crisis, which it didn't, or Bank of America's, which it basically did. Um, okay. Like if you give them time and they have the confidence of, of people to keep funding them, there's a pathway there because there's earning power. How do you, unless government's going to raise money for someone and accept losses, like actually lose money or tie up their capital to earn nothing on it, which is going to be controversial with people to do that. Um, who would put more money into businesses that don't earn a lot of money? The reason you do it is you get like a good price. So what I'm saying is like, if you have something, and First Republic's a good example because um, they should be worth like price to book of one or something normally. So if they drop to half of that, then the private market can like provide them with capital. It will dilute shareholders and stuff, but you don't need to say, okay, we need to rush in, close this bank down, whatever. You can come up with a plan. But if you have something where the return on equity is not very good, uh, then you've got a problem. So yeah, what's Credit Suisse's 10-year return on assets? This says 0.0%. Return on equity, 0.8%. Okay. All right, so not not that good. Uh, no. You know, there's lots of different factors that you can see in there, but you can see that before the financial crisis, no, actually not before the financial crisis. Well, they in the past they've had higher return equity, but sometimes that's a very high leverage ratio. Like um, certainly, I'm you know I mentioned Bear Bear Stearns. Um, I think usually ended a quarter around 30 times leverage, and maybe in the middle of the quarter was at 50 times before the financial crisis. So in those cases, if you um, have you know zero point to, to 0.5% return on assets, um, you could still have a high enough return on equity. But even then, they grew too fast, you know? So, 
Uh, so it's just something to point out. Um, I think it's a good idea to have profitability higher than than growth. Um, I think growth generally is a big problem, and I think that you're limited to some extent in the the safe growth of your banking sector by the profitability of it. So one of the best ways to fix problems is to improve the profitability of your banks if you're a government or country somewhere that, that wants to fix those things. Um, and then they can grow on their own without a lot of supervision needed. Do you think there were other problems also at play here with Silicon Valley Bank? I mean, I think one member on their board had actual banking experience. I mean, this is a financial institution that's very risky and you need very experienced people to be the de facto, I mean, risk management, right? A board's the one that's supposed to be overseeing the company. I mean, do you think there were other missteps here that will come out as this is litigated, put out in front of Congress, all the emails are drawn up, you know, employees, stuff like that? Sure, there'll be criticisms of some of those things, I'm sure. Um, they, but I mean, they've been in business a very long time and they've been through a few cycles. I mean, I can ask um, you a very simple question, not, right? Would you ever invest in yeah. a bank where the board only had one person with banking experience? I mean, was that something that would worry you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, that was my major concern with something where I looked at a sort of a platform for doing certain lending decisions and stuff. It's a fintech, but I was concerned that everyone was from the technology business and no one was from the, the, um, uh, in that case, insurance, uh, business. But I, I did feel that if you're going to do take any sort of insurance risk, which in a sense, this thing was, um, even if you're not insured, then you need to have experience in that area. Yeah. So, but the other thing is like Silicon Valley banks existed for like 40 years or something. No one in banking mm -hmm. in the last 40 years has seen this, right? So you'd need to go back about 42 years or something, uh, maybe 43 years in that neighborhood to have the last time that rates jumped like this. And so I mentioned all the time, but like that period from about 69 to about 81 has the same sorts of risks that they're facing now. And so you'd have to read about it. You have to learn about it from other people and stuff. It's, it's not something that you actually could have had experience with. And so in some ways you could be taught about banking stuff that you can only fail from credit type things. You can't fail from this sort of liquidity, um, issue, uh, from taking these sorts of risks. And, um, you also could, you know, I don't know, you could also have higher confidence that the fed will do what it says it will do then turned out to be the case because this is so far from what the Fed has done, but you've kind of been taught before to listen to what they say and, and to follow it. Um, and then also, like we talked about, if you have certain, I think if you have some regulations and rules for how things should be handled and um, people comply with that, and this is what I said with sort of the idea of a chief risk officer, an unintended consequence of that is that it's, a, and it's seen as a rubber stamp of the other things you're doing that there's no rules about. So if we make rules about some kind of risk extensively and don't make a lot of rules about another kind of risk and give people a clean bill of health, um, in some ways it can actually cause them to take less care with their own risks that they're taking um, than if you had no rules at all. Now, no rules at all isn't good, but I'm just saying that no, that some rules, but not some other rules, or some attention attention paid to some risks, but not others, tends to give you the the feeling that you're safe when you aren't. Um, Buffett, you know, has talked about that best, where he says that that life tends to snap you at your weakest link, right? And that that's really all that matters. It actually doesn't matter that you're like First Republic is a good example of this. They go on and on and on all the time about how they're taking like no credit risk in terms of how safe their portfolios and everything, and it is. 
but there's no need to if your if your credit portfolio is one standard deviation safer than than it than it often has been in other banks or whatever you don't need to push it to three that you know you don't need to maximize the the safety of from a credit risk instead you need to minimize the danger from the from the duration risk and stuff um and so it's a series of being safe enough versus everything else and also with the issue of the bank run thing it's not even that all you have to be really is relatively safer than most banks because then you won't be the one that has the run you know eventually government will step in or whatever you won't be one of the first ones to fail and so if you're the safest investment bank out there even if what you're doing is not very safe they won't let them all fail so you just have to make sure that you're not one of the few that is worse off and so if you're on every level you're taking a little less risk than than everybody else then you're in a much better position but if you if you ex are extreme in one area versus another then you do have these risks and so there's a good argument in some of these cases that some of these banks are very safe in some ways and they may have been but they're they're not safe in other ways you know so um, and that's often what happens when they put out these statements the statements are true usually usually the statements are perfectly true in everything that they say however you read them and you notice that they completely don't mention an issue and that issue that you find is what the problem is at that bank so you know they say you know that they've they're earning money and they've earned money for however many years and and um they're going to report earnings that are positive and stuff, you know, not taking into account these, the health and maturity stuff. And they're taking like no credit risk and they're, they're adequately capitalized or they're highly capitalized or whatever. And uh, that may all be true, but they don't mention the fact of like, what's the duration of the portfolio and stuff, if that's the issue or some other one that has an issue that something else will do the same thing. So you, you know, it's, they don't, lie about what they're putting out there what they what they do is they just omit the issue that you have to focus on and it's that one thing that can cause it to fail mm -hmm. do you think frost is sort of alone in the way that they think about their exposure to interest rates i mean how do you think a bank yeah. should manage their uh you know duration exposure what's the best way to go about doing well, it so the issue is basically, mostly it's just how you're set up as a business. And that was the problem for Silicon Valley. It's a problem for Signature. I think we give a lot of credit to companies that their management makes all these smart decisions and that they don't take these risks and others don't. It's mostly just naturally, organically, how your business was built up. That is the main reason. So, you know, if, if you wanted to be invested in financials and take no risk in terms of this duration stuff, uh, you could just invest in American Express. But it's not because the American Express um, or interactive brokers or um farmer mac right so it's not that there's anything smart about them as management teams and stuff it's that their business is set up that way like interactive brokers mm -hmm. borrows and lends immediately at a small spread um a small spread below uh, uh, fed funds to borrow a small spread above to to lend and it's completely that's all that they do and that's what the business is um American Express we talked about is um, super short term in terms of everything they're doing. They're taking a lot of credit risk, but um, that means that they're not taking any risk in terms of investing that that way. And then, uh, you know, when I mentioned Farmer Mac, that's a GSC that can issue and then it just tries to match off, you know, so people, so it is able to get funding, which these other banks, you know, would have, uh, would have problems with that, obviously, as compared to a GSC, um, of being able to issue a lot of debt and then 
they match that off. So theoretically, if they're good at managing it, if they need to fund something for 10 years, then they need to make sure that they issue things for 10 years, you know? Um, and you know, in each of those cases, you're not taking duration risk stuff. Uh, Pharmac, you're taking huge risks in terms of what the leverage is and everything. And so if things go wrong, it could be like the other GSEs that failed in terms of how bad that is, right? Um, American Express, lots of credit stuff. So if they go into areas they shouldn't be in and stuff, they could fail from all sorts of stuff. But their their business models are just set up differently. Um, I do think that the management thinks differently about it because what I would say is read the... the my biggest suggestion to people is read the last earnings call transcript from Frost and read the last earnings call transcript from First Republic. In terms of what management is saying, you'd be convinced that Frost has more of a problem than First Republic does. Because they actually say at some points when they're asked, like, so do you want to buy more bonds and things and whatever, you know, they're saying, well, we want to see how things are going with deposits. You know, we haven't had this kind of experience before and, you know, things are moving around that way and we'll see how that settles out and stuff. But, you know, we need a little more time to see that and, and just a few different things where they say, you know, that they're they're watching that issue. And with First Republic, they say, no, we're not going to tap the federal home loan bank stuff because we'd like these CDs better. We're not going to, um, you know, the, the, the analyst questions are a lot about it, but the, the responses are very different between the two companies. That doesn't, but that doesn't necessarily mean the situation will be different because, um, Although here, the, the perception is it's different, I should say, because like I said, they both have preferred stock out. And as of the last I checked, First Republic's is, is um, I think, uh, let's say, you know, uh, it's about half the price of, um, of, of Frost using the most similar preferred stock, which would be an indicator of the credit risk. I mean, there's different ways of assessing mm -hmm. it, but at a bank, because of the way that these bailouts have been done and stuff, I think looking at the preferred stock can be a good guide because it, their expectation is depositors will be protected, but preferred stock won't be. Um, and so, uh, so, so there is a perception, I guess, that Frost is, is safer um, than First Republic that way. But there hadn't been historically in terms of the the equity, certainly. And I don't know until when the price dropped a lot of First Republic's um, preferred. But actually, these two banks, since the pandemic, had been their stocks had been moving very similarly. Would you be interested in Frost? No. Price. Mm -hmm. So I think it's too expensive? Yeah. I mean, it's not too expensive if interest rates stay this high forever and stuff. But yeah, I mean, why would you want to pay up for a bank where you're taking a significant amount of risk and everything um, with any bank doing that? Um, you know, you're paying probably... I mean, it, it depends on... So Frost... Frost earnings expectations for the year, they they tell you what they're basing it on. They don't do an earnings guidance, but they say what they think the Fed will do. So they say, we think that the $10.80 some cents um, a share expectation from analysts is reasonable. And um, we're penciling in, you know, a one rate increase in March, I believe, from the Fed. Or no, no. At the time they did this, February. So they would have thought that the Fed would have already stopped by now, and a rate cut in like July or something, and that's it. So basically, they expected one rate increase and then one cut. We'll probably get more than that, but we don't know now. Um, 
So yeah, they expect to earn around eleven dollars a share if the Fed raises rates one time, you know, in in February, and that was it. Um, yeah. So what is that? Nine times, ten times um, earnings. So nine or ten times earnings at what's supposed to be the peak. I don't know. It, you know, we'll see how fast it comes down and everything, but I don't think I would want to, I wouldn't rush out to buy it at today's price in the situation that all banks are in. Because obviously deposits could go down, which decreases the earning value of the, the business over time. I mean, what are your thoughts on the way that everything was handled? Putting uh, Silicon Valley Bank into receivership, just communicating to the market that their deposits are safe, both insured and uninsured. Does that help the contagion, right? That's the big word. Um, do you have any thoughts towards the way that everything was handled? And do you think it is contained or do you expect to see more failures um, here shortly? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't think anyone would say it was good what happened. So I think they'll they'll do investigations and stuff, and they'll probably come to the conclusion they should have been shut down earlier. Um, but I don't know the situation in terms of what could have been realized and and sold off and stuff. I don't know how much franchise value there was in in Silicon Valley Bank. I don't know how fast things were deteriorating when they knew about it. Um, but yeah, these were bad. This is not normally how banks fail in the United States. So these were huge failures. And they were done by closing the bank, which is not often the way that huge failures are done. Um, these were big failures that are done like surprise failures from fraud and stuff are done with very small banks. Um, so yeah, it's most like Washington Mutual. Um, there's been one or two others in the history that's like this, but yeah, this is very, very different than how banks failed in, in 2008 and stuff. Um, they didn't do it while the bank was open and, and find someone and line up a buyer right away for it and everything the way it's normally done. So, yeah, they were caught by surprise by that, and it was a big problem. And also they're taking more risk, FDIC, in these cases, that taking over the banks, they're taking risk to the fund. And um, we don't know all the details about the Fed and stuff, but potentially the Fed is willing to take more risk than than normal and really than they're like historically before 2008 were supposed to ever do. They weren't really supposed to take risk, and obviously if you're willing to accept overvalued collateral for loans like this, you know, your loan to value in reality on this stuff is, I mean, if you're taking it at the held to maturity price and stuff, then I, I don't know what is your loan to value that you could be taking some of this at right now. Like we said, 60, 60, I mean uh, that you're taking the, the, excuse me, uh, the loan to value is like 150% or something. You're lending quite a bit more than, than it's worth. And if you keep raising rates, you're then it'll get worse and worse. So, I mean, normally the Fed wouldn't accept for collateral something that has a market value that's way below uh, what the loan is. I mean, a bank wouldn't do that. So they're obviously taking risk by doing this. Do you have any thoughts towards brokerage firms? Charles Schwab has been in the uh, news a good amount as well. Uh, their stock, their equity has been getting hit. Charles Schwab and Interactive Brokers have nothing in common. If you look at their balance sheets, they're two completely different animals. So... Say it without saying it, Jeff. Um, okay, so we could take some questions. We have a ton of questions that came in. Uh, I did a, a tweet just asking for people just uh, ask whatever they want about banking, and we'll go over it. Uh, first question, how do you prevent a slow bleed of deposits to the big banks 
or to alternative yielding instruments in this environment. It seems that corporate customers need to start worrying about treasury management for the first time in a decade and will move excess cash to treasuries. Yeah, that I don't know why it hasn't happened yet, but um, it's an issue. And it was an issue with the savings and loans and everything. When you create instruments that people can invest in instead that yield more, um, then unless you have something like what apparently was the case with Silicon Valley Bank, where there were reasons why they had to keep all their money there, um, then you would have the excess money somewhere else. But you should really have the excess money somewhere else probably anyway from a just management in terms of the interest rate and the risk that you're taking and the yield that you get because obviously you could be owning shorter term treasuries or be in money market stuff um, with not having to take as long as a CD or something. Um, so I'm not sure why more companies don't do that anyway. Um, and yeah, but I, I think it's more the interest rate thing than any, anything else that they would be doing it to make more money. I don't think that it makes a lot of sense to do it from a, like a risk perspective. I really don't think that uninsured deposits are at risk. Do you think FDIC limits should be higher? I mean, were you surprised to hear, for example, like Roku? I think they had like $400 million at Silicon Valley Bank. I was not as shocked as you'd think about that. Um, it would be easy to raise the FDIC limits, but they couldn't be raised like that. There, you know, there's all sorts of different things that you could fix a lot of these problems. Um, the government could if they wanted to, but there'd be all sorts of pushback from different groups and stuff on it. But yeah, in terms of raising it to a level that wouldn't present a problem for personal things, you could do it. You could also do it to, you know, relatively unlimited levels if it was assessed the way that like um, airline stuff is. So airlines and airport charges and stuff like the TSA fees and stuff are forced to be, the airlines can't omit showing them and stuff and they have to be charged directly to the customer and everything and you're shown exactly what it is. Uh, FDIC stuff isn't done that way. So if you eliminated the concept of like free accounts and everyone had to pay an assessed fee directly on the account that they personally had to pay and stuff, I think that that could definitely change the conversation and that it could work to have FDIC um, be able to insure things. Yeah. So... So you paid your own premiums, basically. So each account, you know, had to have premiums that were associated with that account, which would make sense, and you'd have to pay it. So then Roku would be told that, you know, your percentage is this amount. To have a this amount has this amount of risk, and it's priced for that. So how risky is a $500 million deposit held at one bank? And then Roku would be paying that each month, you know, as a premium or each day or whatever. Um, yeah. I think that if that was done and shown to them, I think that would be a way of doing that. FDIC stuff that that would work to insure almost any amount. I mean, could you see the trend towards the big banks, though? I mean, how many people would be like, yes, I like my small regional bank or credit union or whatever. I like the banker. But why not go to a JP Morgan where if JP Morgan is failing, you probably have the world's ending. So money doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Like systemically too big to fail. I mean, could you see how people may start to think that way? And just go to the big bank because you're like, well, even if I don't think anything's wrong with my smaller bank, why take that risk? Yeah, it's very possible. And I think people might do that. Uh, and certainly um, when people ask me what banks are safe and stuff, I'd say I can tell you what banks are safe. But in terms of what ones the, the government wouldn't allow to have any problems, obviously the biggest banks are that. So you would just go to the biggest. Um, it doesn't make sense, though, both from two perspectives. One, realistically, again, I think uninsured deposits don't present risks in the United States. So I think realistically, there's no point in moving 
from the bank that you're at to one of those big banks, you actually don't have risk that I see as, as likely. Um, and secondly, uh, it's also not as good as going to treasuries. So, I mean, it doesn't have the highest yield and I don't think it, there's real risk there. So people may do it because they feel that they should do it, but it doesn't make uh, sense to me either, either way. Um, but it's very possible that people do it. There's been reports that they've been seeing inflows and stuff, obviously. I also just think that it's the ones people are most likely to know. And so um, I think big banks get it mostly for those reasons. If Frost is losing deposits and stuff, I'm sure it's to the biggest banks. That's basically who they compete with in Texas, for instance. So, um, yeah, most of these regional banks compete primarily with with the big national banks because that's that's just the ones that people know the same way as they might go with Geico or Progressive for insurance if they're not going to check quotes from everyone. Um, same thing. Yeah. So somebody asked, he said, my take is that the big banks are impossible to analyze. Curious if you guys agree. And then someone had said, I think I remember Ackman asking this question at the Berkshire AGM and Buffett pretty much agreed. Obviously didn't stop. Yeah. I've seen that clip. Yeah. 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 I pretty much agree with that. Um, but at some point it doesn't necessarily matter all that much. Um, you know, if things are big enough, I mean, well, I mean, so like, let's say that Bank of America has $500 billion in a held to maturity, um, long-term, like mortgage-backed things, treasury-like things, whatever. Um, okay. I mean, you can, you can figure out what that is. Then you can say, well, what exposures could they have and stuff um, that I don't know about and everything? And how big could those be? If, I mean, there's a lot of pretty simple stuff that's very big. So you're able to understand that. The basics of it are pretty simple. Um, it's a lot about what's the cost of your deposits and stuff like that. They could do something very stupid on the asset side. But, I mean, when you invest in any insurance company and stuff, you don't know the nature of everything that they're doing. When you invest in any bank, you don't know exactly what they're doing in terms of loans that they could be talking to you about. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think you can 100% understand it. And there'll always be things that crop up that you don't know that you'll take losses on. But the question is whether the stuff you do know is so big versus the stuff you don't know that it doesn't matter. Um. So like I said, when you're talking about you do understand a $500 billion portfolio, then how much does it matter if they're going to lose $5 billion on something that you don't know about, right? Like um, even if they have a horrific, you know, even if they there's something that they're doing that they're going to have a 50% uh, of it's going to default and, and you're only going to get back a third of your money on the stuff that does default and whatever, you can run the numbers and say, well, how big would that have to be and me not know about it for this to matter to the valuation of the bank or to the amount of equity they have? So yeah, there's always going to be surprises that you don't realize. We talk about Credit Suisse, you know, they've had a ton of different things that they do wrong. Um, so yeah, but so if it is invested in it, but yes, I think that they're very hard to understand. Next question. What is the longer term outlook for banking? With current events, it appears deposit costs are rising and the net interest margins are being squeezed. Are there any exceptions out there? Does he know of any banks that invested the C word deposits correctly? Uh, and you put in parentheses, match invest and deposit duration. Thanks in advance. Yeah, I, I mean... Yeah, there's a few ways of looking at that. One, yes, I know of many banks that have no held to maturity securities at all, all available to say, uh, all available for sale. Um, there are many banks that their loans to deposit ratio went down, so they obviously didn't lend the money, and some of them didn't buy long term securities with it. Um, I don't know that they all matched off exactly. I'm not sure that you have to do that. I mean, we don't match everything off 
exactly in our fund. People can withdraw with like a quarter of notice and they can withdraw over a period of a year. Um, I'd say generally that means we'd be able to sell everything faster than they could withdraw it, but it varies. Um, on average though, our duration, you know, in terms of how quickly we get out of things is, is a lot shorter than, than people's, uh, than the time it would take for people to take their money uh, is a lot. We could get out a lot quicker than people could demand the money. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, we talked, uh, there's a bank we did not invest in, but we talked to the management. If you remember, Andrew, we talked to like the top three people there or something. It's a local bank in Texas. And, uh, they're, uh, they have zero held to maturity. Um, they do CNI lending. They're investing in some like corporate bond type things. They hold money at other financial institutions. They also have no liabilities except for their deposits. Um, effectively none. Uh, so they don't borrow from other things and stuff. Um, so it's a very specialized way of doing it, but that means that what losses they had and stuff they've been reporting because, you know, that things went down because of the interest rate stuff, uh, it's been reported, you know, and so it's reflected in the book values and in the earnings and all of that. There's not other stuff that isn't. Um, and some moved things, to be honest. I mean, we actually mentioned the name of something recently that uh, you can see on their balance sheet uh, basically is the same size that it was, but half of the available for sale stuff went to be held to maturity. So um, there's a reason why they did that. And obviously you stuff it full of the most overpriced long-term stuff when you do that. So that's a decision. Also, that's honestly the part of the announcement from Silicon Valley Bank that when I read, I said, you know, it's clear this is going to fail and then it like failed the next day. But when they put out that statement, they basically said, we're going to sell the available for sale stuff. We're not going to touch the stuff that, that we're holding to maturity and stuff. And that was going to draw everyone's attention to the fact of what the situation was there and that we can't sell stuff. We can't recognize this and we don't have enough money to pay people. Um, it just draws the attention to when you say that, you know, and uh, that was the situation that they were in. So, and it's very clear from the, from the announcement, you know, when you read it, you there's just very clear that that's what was happening. That's why they were doing this. So as not to have to take, um, to, to have to deal with that fact instead of having everything, if it was available for sale, I mean, you know, yeah, obviously the bank wouldn't have bought the same stuff. I think if they were going to have to market as if they could sell it at any time. So I think that you have a better discipline if you keep everything available for sale, but is JP Morgan a fortress? Um, a lot of the banks are pretty safe. So I, I don't think they have a lot of risk overall. Um, and certainly that's a too big to fail bank. So it won't have a problem with people pulling money. Someone asks how to check a bank if they are tiny to file. I know they file somewhere else. Yes. Um, they all file call reports. So at the FDIC, if I with the FDIC, you can find it on FDIC. I often, um, look at banks that are private, for instance, um, just to comp them against other banks and to get some idea sometimes in what part of the country you might be interested in a business to sometimes looking at the banks is helpful in understanding that. So, um, you can look at it on FDIC, um, looking it up and, uh, act, I mean, for any public bank that you'd be worried about, you can find it on OTC markets cause they have the call reports up there. They're actually better than other things that way, but otherwise you would go to the FDIC website and find it probably. Um, as you mentioned, every bank 
I mean, the 10K stuff, they don't. 10Ks and 10Qs, banks don't necessarily have to file with the SEC. They could file with the FDIC. Uh, and some banks might have different regulators. But basically, you would find on FDIC stuff. Just if that question is about, like, you want to know about the health of a bank for some reason. But if you, honestly, if you want to know because it's a publicly traded stock, even if it's tiny, over-the-counter markets is the best by far. Because they, they've integrated the call reports stuff right on the stock ticker. So you can find it listed under the disclosures. So it's actually better than Edgar or something. Go to the, the ticker um, and put it on otcmarkets.com. Uh, I was referring only to like if you for some reason want to know about a bank that's not publicly traded. It'll still have to file with the with the government. Hmm. Public record. Uh, the, yeah. the current short-term treasury rate is much higher than most bank rates. Do you see customers sorting cash to higher interest earning treasuries as a challenge to sticky deposit franchises. Schwab's model comes to mind, but I'm curious to know what other banks this may affect. Yeah, uh, a bunch of banks will encourage people to move into CDs and money market accounts and things and to sweep into things and do all that to try to keep them in the bank in some way. And they could also perform treasury functions for them. Um, and so there's lots of ways they could keep the relationship while sort of matching things. Um, generally, I don't think they have to match the actual rate um, logically, you would think that they do, but deposits have proven to be very sticky versus what I would expect if people were, why do people keep so much money at the bank and stuff? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, you would think that you put money in money market funds, which own these things and have low expense ratios and stuff, but that's not necessarily what investors do. So I said, Jeff has always talked about deposits being the thing to watch out for in banks of all sizes. How does this new risk we're seeing unfold change that view or how can we modify that view in light of the recent events? Well, see, so I, I don't think it does. I mean, I think this is the reason why you need your deposits to be sticky. The question is your assessment of them of whether you think you're correct in it. So you may have thought that it's great that Silicon Valley has all these deposits this way or something. Um, there's a few things to keep in mind. One, if you've had a huge growth in deposits, they're probably not sticky. Because, I mean, I say this all the time, but they left someone else to come to you. So they're the ones most likely to leave you. It's the same as if you you got your girlfriend by taking her away from someone else. Um, most likely that you're going to be cheated on. Uh, same, that's true in advertising agencies, law firms, accounting things. It, whoever your most recent client is, is the one who's most likely to leave you. So um, the, the seasoned business is the most likely way to keep deposits. So a slower growth rate is actually better for that. So, I mean, if you have a bank that's barely grown at all and has been around forever and is with a lot of households who have been there for 20 years and stuff, those deposits aren't going anywhere probably. I mean, you could see that even if you look at like news reports and things of they interview customers at different banks, you know, they'll say, oh no, I'm sticking with this bank and whatever. But the venture capitalists didn't stick with it. People who were, you know, there's a lot of people who might not stick with it. But um, I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's always the issue that you have. We talk about marginality all the time in terms of what's the, what's the first thing to leave you? What's the last thing that you got, um, in terms of deposits or anything else? It's the same. I think whether you're looking at an investment bank or a commercial bank or whatever is the reliability of that. It's also why things like American express insurance, things float, um, stuff is better than deposits. Um, to be honest, Banking is not as good a business as a business that generates float purely from the basis of something that someone doesn't realize the financial relationship that they have as part of it. People are aware that they're not being paid interest as high on their bank deposits as they could by putting the money somewhere else. 
it's better if you were an insurance company or something because obviously your float is much less likely to drop. Uh, insurers don't have this problem because people are still going to want that insurance no matter what. They don't really think of it as, oh, I have can go somewhere else and get a better deal and stuff to the same extent. So natural float generation is better. Um, to some extent, where I talked about interactive brokers and American Express, um, those are financial institutions that do, I think, are less like banks in the way that people think about them and stuff. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's perfectly safe what they're doing, but the activity levels there are being driven by something somewhat a little bit different than just what, where I'm getting the most money on my deposits. Um, so, I mean, look, if the bank is advertising, like, come to us with large deposits, we pay the highest interest rates and stuff, obviously that's that's not so sticky, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, Silicon Valley is kind of an interesting situation. They also had the problem. I mean, Silicon Valley, the problem with that is you can never be like more reliable than your customers too, which, you know, is a problem with all of these. The same with a cyclical business or whatever. Even if they like Silicon Valley Bank as their bank, the customers themselves are, um, you know, not great depositors. They were the, the, You have a group of depositors who will burn cash all the time. So, and I'd say the same thing about, you know, if you're funded by a bunch of things that are meme related things, crypto things, all those, I would just, you know, I'd be a little more hesitant than that, than like CNI type um, customers and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I says, what is the better business model? Old school investment banking advisory that has very good years than very average years or the new model of trying to diversify and generate stable revenue and earnings. I think the old model. And why is that? I don't think investment banking will, I think investment banking will not be a good business uh, because I don't think they can use as much leverage as they used to. The best business, I mean, they don't talk about all the ways they make money and stuff in these, but like um, more than you would think, a lot of investment banking money, in my view, was made through applying very high leverage to very safe um, inefficiencies in the market. So it's the equivalent of what we're talking about, like arbitrage and stuff like that when applying very thing. I mean, a lot of investment banking and stuff was more like what long-term capital management did um, than people like to think. So I think without huge amounts of leverage, I don't know that investment banking makes, investment banks are very attractive. I think other kinds of banks are more attractive than investment banks. Has cash tag Jeff ever invested in any thrift slash mutual bank conversions? If so, did he do well with them? Does he have any interesting stories, thoughts, and or advice about them? No, I have not. Um, let's see. What are some good books to read to learn more about banking and analyzing banks? Uh, there are a lot of them. Um, I think we taught you talked about a website, right, that you could go to that has a yeah. lot of good ones. Maxfield on banks, I believe is his website. I'll put it in the description. He has a reading list, uh, bank investor handbook, yeah. all of our podcasts on banking. Um, reading about failures is great. We're learning about a failure in real time. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'll post a link. Yeah, to that. so I think list. Yeah, listed on there are some that include things like past bank failures and everything. And uh, yeah, those are good. Aside from shorter durations, what else could SVB have done? I mean, the most obvious thing. The biggest issue that they had, I guess, is a lack of diversification in terms of their client base. 
and relying heavily on a client base that probably isn't the best to have. Um, I think it was a very, very hard model to work without failing at some point. And I kind of always thought that about the bank, but you know, um, I think it was baked into what the bank was from the beginning that this was always a serious risk. Um, there are companies that have managed that better. Berkshire Hathaway in insurance stuff has just let premiums decline, you know, so they've been in very lumpy kinds of businesses. But I think most kinds of very lumpy, very volatile businesses in terms of if you have very volatile deposits and stuff like that, your bank or your, your business is eventually going to end very badly because most people will just keep doing the same thing um, at, even as conditions change. And so that's my fear with, with lots of things. It's my fear with lending into things that have bubbles is that you won't have the discipline to stop. Um, and it's my fear with, with the client things a lot too. So I don't blame management in a lot of these cases as much as some people do. And I don't give as much credit to the ones of the very safe ones. You know, I think it's a lot of it is the business model and how they created it. Um, they needed to have a special kind of discipline. They could have had it. I mean, if Warren Buffett ran the bank, this wouldn't have happened. It, you know, if he, I should say, if he ran their, their, uh, bond portfolio, you know, their, their securities, um, because they, you know, it, it, you could have avoided this with the way that you invested it, but you know, um, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's mostly the, the business model that you have this problem. And I worry about that a lot with different banks and whatever, just uh, different companies in general that you, what risks will you be exposed to of like what behavior could it encourage that's bad behavior and everything. And, you know, it's the same thing I say about like, you know, consumer business versus cyclical business. It's just easier to the consumer business because you can do the same thing every day. The conditions don't change that much. You don't have to be that smart for the cyclical business. You have to be smart by changing your behavior throughout. Uh, there's a time when it's a good decision, a time when it's a bad decision. Um, there was a huge failure of common sense here. But it was by doing the same thing that you always do. So, I mean, um, you have to kind of take a step back and be like, is this insane what we're doing? And it, yeah, it's insane. You're, you're buying a vastly overvalued thing. But I've seen lots of companies that do that. I've seen companies in, in Asia and stuff buy real estate at like, you know, valuations that have to mean that you're overpaying by some huge amount. But they... They say it doesn't matter what the rent is on it. It goes up in value each year. And we're going to hold it and we'll sell it and it's an investment property. And they do the exact same thing that Silicon Valley Bank was doing here. And at some point that stops, you know. Uh, at some point you have to realize that there's a yield on what you're buying and it doesn't make sense. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, this is not as forgivable as like some bank failures from the 70s and stuff. When they bought treasuries, they were saying that's never yielded this much. Right, so they did the same thing. They went out and bought like thirty-year treasuries and stuff. They, it's never, it's never had to yield this high. This bank did it, that kind of thing, by buying something very long-term and at one of the worst prices you could ever get for it, instead of one of the best mm -hmm. prices. It seemed so. Yeah, I mean, common sense, but I think it was the business model. I mean, when you've talked about investing in Frost, right? It was the extreme point. They basically did the exact opposite of what you did. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's understandable because for any of these things, why didn't they do these things? A lot of banks and a lot of companies don't like the idea of reporting almost nothing in earnings and stuff. What, what, what's, there's a few things at the root of this, but one of the most 
um, common ones is that they want to report the same or slightly better earnings. They don't want to say, okay, let's have some really bad years. And um, if they were like a unit of something bigger, I'm not sure this would happen. If you could disguise it. I think publicly reporting and stuff is a bigger deal. I think, yeah. Um, certainly, I think that's all that happened with First Republic, for instance, is that that's a bank where if you look at it, they could have just said, let's be extra careful about how we do things. Let's do some really smart stuff to get our bank in a better position and have a couple of really bad years and take our medicine that way. Silicon Valley Bank, I don't know about that, but I certainly think that could have been done at First Republic. Um, and I think they just wanted to not have earnings drop to like almost nothing and have bad years and stuff. I think they wanted consistency and whatever that you can see in their past results. And uh, yeah, you know, it's like the GE type of thing all over again. If, if you're trying to be that consistent all the time and the conditions keep changing on you, you know, it gets harder and harder. So we answered a few of these other questions in one way or the other okay. on, uh, on this uh, podcast, but we could skip ahead. Uh, which deposits are high quality and how do you think about core deposits? Retail versus commercial, question mark. Core deposits are usually those under 250K, which are considered to be low cost and less likely to flee. However, Ally... Uh, Ally Financial has 90% of deposits under 250K, but they are high costs. Yeah. Uh, I think things that indicate they're with you for other reasons. Now, this was Silicon Valley Bank had this in some respects, so we'll see. But um, yeah, obviously having lots of households and having a lot that are low amounts would be helpful. Um, but I don't know because remember with some banks, like what you're seeing in checking and stuff, people just think, oh, well, that'll flee to something else or whatever as they want higher rates. But it, but if you, I mean, that could be retained in terms of moving it into a different kind of account that pays more, have paying more on things, moving into CDs and stuff with the same bank, you know? So I think that um, in general, a, a lot more... I think having many accounts at the same bank, I think having many services from the bank, and um, I think banks that do pay somewhat competitive, I mean, yeah, somewhat competitive rates and stuff, to be honest. I mean, my, my the thing that I don't actually like not paying pretty competitive, like uh, the one I mentioned to you before, the bank that we're talking about in Texas, actually has, I think, some very good deposits and stuff. They are aggressive in paying and how high they pay on some very basic deposit products. Um, but that's all they get their money from, you know? Um, and I think that's a pretty smart model actually. Um, and you know, and I think that a lot of banks should have raised their rates faster. I think they would have been a lot better to do that. Now they're in a problem because if they raise the rates, it signals that they are in some sort of distress. So they are, would be hesitant to do it now. But in the past, I think it would have made a lot more sense to raise it. And, um, yeah. So I think that's part of it. I think that, I think you could keep deposits and stuff if it if it was like boiling a frog, you know, but I think that um, letting the gap get as big as it did in some cases was not good. But, you know, they were all diluted by the pandemic thing, you know, as were all sorts of people, us and whatever, you know, just like in general about stocks, about everything in life, that this was a change and we kind of just adjusted to it very quickly and didn't say this is completely abnormal. Trey asks, if Jeff had to make an investment long or short, common stock prefers or options on regional banks what would it be uh, preferred with leverage any situation I mean, there's some there 
do I want to name the particular preferred stocks? That's I mean, if asking. I was going to buy the distressed, yeah, I mean, there's there's lists of preferred stocks of all the banks. Um, lots of banks have them out. Um, I believe Signature had preferred stock. Silicon Valley had preferred stock. First Republic has preferred stock. Charles Schwab has first preferred stock. Frost has preferred stock um, that trades. A lot of them are going to be, they're going to call them depository uh, shares, and they'll say that they're 140th interest in something, which is probably like a trust or something. Um, so basically, they should tra trade at par, being $25 is their liquidation value. Also, because of interest rates going up, some of them have come down even more. A lot of this is perpetual preferred, but it can be called in a few years by the bank. Um, and I would say that that preferred stock in some cases is very interesting, especially if you think that the bank might be safe in any way. And like I said, with applying leverage to the situation, um, because you can get the interest, the yield. And I think some people underestimate this part of it, the, the yield part is okay, fine. So like as of, you know, a day ago or whenever I looked something like Charles Schwab or something is not necessarily the safest thing in the world, but it's not the riskiest. But um, is like in the six and a half percent, you know, six to seven percent yield probably, and so is something like uh, frost. Um, if you if you're doing this in a more leveraged way, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then you can get the return from the increase in the capital gain from it if it recovers. So if twenty five is the normal number to see, I think First Republic, for instance, was down at nine or something at one time. So if you really thought that that the common stock won't get wiped out, the preferred won't get wiped out. Now it's non cumulative, but Anyway, the recovery from nine to a much higher level is likely if you have complete confidence that the common stock won't be wiped out totally. Um, it's not the best things I've seen that way, but to, to give you an idea, some of these things, so people might know the Seritage situation. So Seritage has preferred stock out. Now, people are assuming that the common stock will get paid off. It's in liquidation, right? So like, that's a very good idea to buy the preferred stock in Seritage if you have confidence that there'll be anything recovered for the common stock. And people are obviously buying it with the expectation of a pretty nice distribution from that. And that'll happen fast. Some of these banks are valued at similar levels in terms of yield and stuff to the Seritage preferred. But the, the capital gains potential is much greater because Seritage is trading very, very close to, to par. Um, where these, some of them are trading a lot lower. So, um, yeah, I think if you're going to, I'd say preferred stock of those and then analyze the different banks and come to some conclusion. I think preferred stock where I really like the management in this situation, I felt they were going to do the right things and stuff could be pretty safe because all you need to know is that the, the common will be protected in some way. It won't be valueless. Um, I would avoid it if you have any concerns about the management, you know, doing riskier things though. Next question. Jeff has mentioned love for BOH, Bank of Hawaii, mm. in the past, thanks to their low cost deposit stickiness. But it looks like their bond portfolio duration is somewhat long. Any updated opinions yep. now that it's been crushed? Question mark. Uh, yeah, BOH, there's a few issues with it. One, it's often a very expensive stock. Two, it often has high leverage. And, um, like we said there that it could have long-term, um, uh, you know, long duration on those things. Um, they also like, they would buy back their stock and stuff. So of the banks I talked about, BOH is one of the riskier ones. There was also another bank that, uh, I don't remember that I wrote up, but certainly researched to do in that series on banks when we did singular diligence stuff, uh, which was downgraded recently, which is UMB financial, I believe. Um, so of the things that I've looked at in the past and written up or something, I would say Bank of Hawaii and UMB Financial 
are the two that are in some uh, area of concern and stuff right now. Um, so it's something to be aware of in both cases. But one of the issues, to be honest, with a lot of these bank stocks for me is that I don't think they're ridiculously cheap when you take into account concerns about their survival and stuff that we're talking about now, you know, like just in general in the banking system. So these, a lot of these are not super cheap um, before this happened, right? So it dropped a lot. But that's one of the concerns for the common stock. Um, worth mentioning for Bank of Hawaii, I don't know how much this matters to people, but the national banks, the big giant national banks, have extremely, extremely weak positions in Hawaii and Alaska, like to the point that they are practically not there. So uh, deposits leaving Alaska and Hawaii for the big banks is a lot less likely than in many other states. Like it's not as realistic as in Texas, but that's the only other thing I'd mention on that one. It, it's a, it, that bank is, uh, has taken bigger risks and stuff in the past bank of Hawaii than some of the other banks we've talked about. It's actually one of the reasons why people like, uh, certainly when I talk about banks, they always ask me if I like Bank of Hawaii better than Frost because like Frost never buys back its stock and Bank of Hawaii is very willing to do that. So we answered this guy's first question. Um, curious to hear your thoughts mm -hmm. on the second part. The first part was, is the value of deposit franchises intact? The ease of moving money into T-bills and other alternatives have never been higher. Okay, we've hit on that today. His second question, do you see recent events leading to credit tightening for certain industries or borrowers, commercial real estate, for example? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I thought about that. I'm not sure. But yeah, I think it tightens credit conditions overall. And um, these kinds of banks compared to other sorts of banks, you know, yeah, um, commercial real estate um, in their local areas and CNI type stuff. And that's, you know, a few other things. It, it certainly might tighten it too in like um, municipals or something. I mean, that might be one of the ones that's hit hardest um, in terms of if you had a dislocation of some things we're talking about. Preferred stock too. But if, if there was something that people might unload or that might not get bought as much or something, I think it would be um, those things because there might be particular benefits uh, or tendency for some of these institutions, regional banks and stuff, to own more of that. Like Frost, for instance, has a large municipal bond portfolio. And, um, I, and also some things might also sometimes, not as common for these, but like they could also own preferred in other financial institutions and stuff. So um, I think that, you know, the municipal bond market and stuff is sometimes much smaller relative to what they're buying than like um, when we talk about treasuries or corporate stuff for um, the other banks. You know, like obviously a lot of things we want to unload the treasuries longer term and buy shorter and everything. But those are very, very big markets, um, even relative to the size of these banks and everything. But, yeah, I could see it in those things. Um, so commercial real estate, these a lot of these banks are pretty big in commercial real estate. Um, but yeah, so that, that's a logical one that you could certainly think of. So what do you think happens? Do you think the fed pauses on their rate hikes? Do you think they pour gasoline on the fire and continue to raise rates? What happens next week? Uh, it's a very good question and I don't have a good answer for it. If, if, you know, I was surprised that there was not uh, like, I guess on Monday or whatever, um, it was still the expectation, or I should say the expectation, and maybe it shifted from a 50 basis point increase being slightly more likely than a 25 or something to a 25 being almost 100% certain, I think. Mm -hmm. um, that surprised me. 
in that I would think there should be a much higher probability that there's no increase or a cut. Um, that doesn't mean that I think a no increase or a cut is more likely, but I think it's much, much, much more likely than like close to zero. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they would do. Uh, I think probably it's not that harmful to cut here because um, I'm not sure like how much that would actually cause a difference in inflation, but that's a bigger argument. I mean, people could say it's a dumb thing for them to do. It sends the wrong signal and whatever. But in terms of the actual effectiveness of what they're doing, um, it's transmitted a lot through through financial things that we're talking about and through housing things. And I don't see a big cut from the Fed suddenly igniting something in housing and, and cars and things like that because of the situation that we're in. So we talk about this all the time, but I think some people think as if, oh, the Fed moves the interest rate level and magically unemployment moves or like that moves inflation in people's wages and stuff. It doesn't. They've already hammered the housing market and done all this. And they're, you know, to get down the kinds of sticky inflation that we're talking about might require very high rates because of how little effect you can have through the channels that they work. Um but this also might be pretty effective in, in doing it if we have a you know any sort of panic or something. Um, obviously, they've had some effect on the stock market, but not as big, and that could that has some effect. Um, but I, I don't know. And uh, raising rates, I mean, ideally, if they could, you know, it's not a dictatorship and stuff. So there's it's very hard by committee to do these things, but. I would think that um, if you could at the same time cut rates and convince people that rates would be higher in the future, that they would start going up at a measured pace, but continue for a very long time would be better. I mean, since this has started, I've thought that if there was some way that they could convince people, they'll raise rates at every meeting and stuff and they'll keep doing it for years and years would have been the better way to do it. But they have no way to convince people of that. There's no way that you can actually do that. Um, You know, quantitative easing, was their way of really convincing people they wouldn't raise rates because they expected quantitative easing to end before rate increases. So I don't know how much quantitative easing really did directly, but it was a way of kind of um, convincing the market that there's no way they're going to move yet. And so you could convince them that rates should be held for a really long time at that level. I think the problem is that they wouldn't, they lack, um, credibility in the sense that there's no way to convince people of your long-term intent that you're, you know, that you're, um, tying yourself to the wheel, you know, and that you won't, um, uh, turn away at some point, you know, that you won't veer from the course that you're on. Right. So I, I don't see a problem with like cutting rates immediately or something and then changing, uh, in the future. But since like, for a long time now, right? That hasn't been their pattern. Uh, that's I've mentioned that before. That's been like the that's back in the Greenspan era where they would adjust much more to things one way and then the other and everything. I mean, we don't know, but like what's happened could have the effect of much bigger than any of these rate increases we're talking about. That's all that my my point is, I guess. Like like the Fed doesn't do something and then immediately you loot you know, the Fed doesn't raise interest rates by one percent and then uh, people at Meta get laid off or something. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, their effect on things is through financial conditions and then through financial conditions, through those things which are financially sensitive. 
So, um, some things may have the effect in terms of financial conditions tightening of way more than an increase of 25 or 50 or, I mean, this could have the effect of much more than a hundred point increase in, in fed funds. It, this could be like going from, you know, four something to seven or something. If it, if conditions stayed like they are now. Um, so actually it can be much more than if they did it themselves. So, um, probably at this point, like just keeping things the same will result in tighter financial conditions than what was the case before. But I don't know. There, there's different indexes and things that track that stuff, you know, right. You see some of those, Andrew, like, um, I'm sure the daily shot or some other things do that. Bloomberg probably has stuff that tries to track different financial condition measures. Yeah. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the, both of us on the focus compounding podcast. We will continue to probably talk about the developments as they unfold. Uh, if this is the first time you're tuning in with us, be sure to hit that subscribe button, uh, leave us a rating and review. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at, at Focused Compound uh, to get access to everything that we push out into the investing universe. I thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I, the both of us, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.